Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. All right, welcome to Courageous Conversations. I'm Dr. Peter Weinstein. I am here with my partner in crime, Dr. Philip Nelson, for another episode in our podcast. Dr. Nelson, as always, great to be with you. Good to be with you too, Peter. I also like to take this moment to acknowledge Nationwide uh, for supporting uh, this podcast and having the courage to support this Courageous Conversation. And I can't wait to get started with our guest. Who is nothing but fun. She is just one great big ball of fun. Becky Mosser, who is, God, she's a legend in the world of technicians and in the veterinary profession. She has touched and done so many different things. And I just really want to give a big high five virtually to Becky for the work that she's done to support the profession and welcome her to the Courageous Conversations podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you guys so much. I'm actually honored. Tell our audience how you got started in this business. Give us a little bit of your early history and be as personal as you feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, it all started June 24th, 1981. Um, I was, um, no, we'll fast forward. Actually, so it did my interest in veterinary medicine, unlike a lot of veterinarians I know, I didn't grow up saying I'm going to be a veterinarian, but my grandfather, who is a legend, I love to shout him out all the time. He was a neurosurgeon back in like World War II times and did amazing things. He's, he bought the first CAT scan in New York. He um, He's just, he's an amazing man. And he always said to me, you're going to be a veterinarian or a farmer. And I don't think he really knew about veterinary technicians back then, but, you know, fascinating that him being in human medicine, he had, he knew I would not be in human medicine. He knew I would be in animal medicine because I had an interest and a love for animals that he recognized. But I grew up with self-doubt and fear of veterinary medicine, right? Like I felt like it was scary to think about animals in pain and to be brave to, to do something about that, right? Like it's scary. Like we get in scary moments a lot of times and I didn't feel brave enough to deal with that. I went on a job interview finally, like once I recognized I really wanted to see if I I could do this job. And I walked into the back of the clinic and they said, we'll train you on everything here. We'll teach you everything you need to know. And I remember thinking, how is that possible? Like, how could you teach me what I need to know? And if I did, I would be learning on people's pets. And then, so you would give me a pet and, and they would trust that I knew what I was doing and then you would teach me. And I'm not criticizing on the job trained people. I think it's a level of confidence that I didn't have is what I'm saying. I I believe in my credentials, but I know there's a lot of folks out there who are doing amazing things and did learn it on the job. That wasn't the place for me. So literally that day I found a veterinary technician program that happened to be like 20 minutes or so from my house and I enrolled So I was in school to be a veterinary technician by that August and the rest is history, I guess, like they say, Um, it just kind of spiraled from there. So you raise an interesting point uh, that a lot of people don't understand about education, particularly medical education. And that is at some point you have to learn on real patients, whether it's in the clinic or in a formal educational program, unless this was a unique veterinary tech technician school, you did learn on real patients, correctly? Correct? Oh my gosh, I did. Okay. So I, first of all, just to preface, I'm a hard water sign. Like I'm cancer born under other water moons and all of the astrological water (laughs) you can imagine. And I cry with literally every emotion I have. If I'm mad, I cry. If I'm sad, I cry. I cried through so many labs because I felt so bad having to do things that they didn't need done for the sake of my learning. And one of the most amazing mentors I've ever had, Jonathan Loftus, who has since passed away, actually literally made my hand do several things that I couldn't be brave enough to do on my own, but I had to do to pass the class. And I would tell him like, I could do this if they needed it. I know I could do this if this was medically necessary, 
but I feel terrible. It was a really, really hard time for me. And then I later became a student and, or sorry, I later became a, an instructor at that same college. And I did the same for my future students or my future colleagues, really my students. And they would ache inside, you know, and I would be like, I feel you like I know. So yeah, it was, it was actually really hard. It was, it, it was tough, but you have to do it, right? Like you have to do it. You have to do it, but you have to do it with a sense of regard and reverence for life. I feel your pain. I understand uh, uh, Western University actually has a founding principle that is reverence for life. And we translate that for layman by saying, we would not harm or kill an animal for the sole purpose of training a veterinary student. So our faculty do their best to design labs and experiences that wrap around the need of the animal first. But I love what you said about, you know, the only reason I'm doing this is because I'm trying to learn. But there's been an evolution in our values, an evolution in our ethos. Peter and I just finished talking about our birthdays. And then you give us your birthday. And that was almost 40 years before, you know, we were born almost 40 years before that date. I, ra I raised that not to tell everybody how old Peter is, but to make sure that <laughs> Everybody is reminded of the fact that at that time, we looked at animals totally differently. We looked at the welfare of animals totally differently. Yeah. And that affected how we taught as well. Of course, we can really, really be horrific and go back to the 1900s in human medicine and look at how Tell we learned. Tell us about your experiences in the 1900s, Joe. <laughs> Oh, he got me here. back. He got me back. God. He did. You know, all right. I'm just going to shut up now, Peter, because I'm I'm laughing too hard to keep going. And I'm, I'm going to keep score, though. Don't worry. <laughs> but in the 1900s, as you know, you know, we learned a lot by robbing graves. And in some cases, mutilating the poor and the disadvantaged in order to learn what we now know. So the really cool thing about my really cool grandfather that's not so cool is I can remember being like eight, right? Riding surely in the front seat of the car while everyone in it was smoking with no seatbelts on or whatever we were doing in the 80s to, to, to somehow get here. And he literally told me about doing lobotomies. Like he literally performed lobotomies because he was a neurosurgeon and he was like, yeah. And then they invented this great way we could just go through the eye. And it was like this medical advancement that he told me about and how they were able to like make it easier for people with mental illness in asylums to get through the day-to-day -day by lobotomizing. <laughs> and that was like great medicine. He was bragging to me about it and, and the journey that lobotomies took. So, so your story illustrates the progress we've made yeah. And the progress we have to make, uh, you know, yeah. that, that that there's still for, for us to make. as, uh, uh, But that progress is driven by our value system. It is. I mean, I graduated in 2007, right? So even in that time, I we've progressed from hold them down, get the nail trim done. Doesn't matter if they're terrified. Doesn't matter if it's a horrible experience. That nail trim is so important to fear-free certified professionals who, you know, are, are making beautiful online videos and instruction. You think about like Monique Fairchild, for example, has got that video on positive reinforcement training for cats for injections. It has like millions of views or something on YouTube. We're doing it so much better, even in just the span of my career, it's yes. come so far. Yes. So you've gone from a vet tech student with some anxieties to now being a vet tech educator and, and, and to a degree now an administrator. So you mentioned the challenges that you faced in terms of, of hands-on clinical care and, and we've made changes in the veterinary curriculum. Um, it's just amazing the clinical skills labs and the artificial this and the artificial that and putting catheters into fake arms. But when it comes down to being an administrator and a teacher, have you, looked back at your experience to help create a curriculum that addresses and softens the anxieties that you had for the next generation? Because I think there's some 
huge part of this um, education we have for this next generation of veterinarians as well as well as, as students is this reverence for life. I mean, I think yeah. we did a lot of things when um, Phil was in the 1900s and I was 50 years later <laughs> that, that were different, but uh, I think we've progressed in many ways, but are you building a curriculum to help address some of the, the changes generationally as well? So I think almost all the programs are CVTEA highly encourages it. AVMA has adopted those strategies. In fact, I mean, it's it's required in any IACUC protocol to explain why a model can't be used over this particular tech, technique or skill that's being taught when any time a live animal is being used. So we always want to be thinking about not having to use live animals first. But what I really love is these programs that have partnered with shelters. So I think about like Asheville Buncombe here in North Carolina is there, all of their clinical skills are centered around this shelter. And so their, their clinic is attached to the, the shelter. Everything that they learn and do is on an animal who needs it, who, who thrives because of what they do. And I think it creates such an opportunity for them, one, to get so much real life experience. Like anything that comes in that door is what they're going to address. So I think schools have found a way to leverage the community, to leverage real life situations better. And I think if Western College does that, expect like has a really um, clinic-based skills learning set that puts people out in the world learning, I think it makes it a little less intimidating when the day comes that somebody says, boop, you're a doctor, you know, boop, you're a vet tech, because you go from school to work the next day and now you are that thing right and you and you're there to execute so I think yes we're building it into the curriculum in a way that thrives in the community in a lot of different ways and that's the positive movement we're learning in more real life situations and in more and more life situations we're using better techniques we're doing better medicine what could be you know what's better than and fear free just to not sponsored by them but I should be hey I I, I want to say they make their their student curriculum is free so they make it so that there's zero excuse to build it into your curriculum. So Becky, I, I want to apologize to the audience for, for not introducing you in your present position. So yes, why don't you put your crown on and tell and tell everybody just who you are <laughs> right now? I am nobody. I am uh, I'm nobody. I just am like this person who just keeps showing up places for I don't know why. I don't know why I'm lucky enough to show up in the places that I do with the people that I'm with, because frankly, I'm surrounded by amazingly fun, brilliant people that I'm just constantly trying to live up to being around. Um, I was lucky enough and honored to be nominated and elected as the president-elect for the National Association of Vet Techs in America. And I think that's probably the the crown you're referring to right now. And that's, um, I'm like, you know, anytime I get to talk for veterinary technicians in, in representation of the best interests that I, I think that I can for the profession, I'm just beyond honored to do that. Well, both Peter and I think that um, for too long, veterinary technicians have been the unsung heroes of the veterinary profession. Uh, and, and, at, and now there is a, uh, hard recognition of the of the value of veterinary technicians because we need so many of them right uh, right now, and you know, um, uh, frankly, in most hospitals, uh, you can do without a doctor for half a day, you know, uh, while they're if they have to have a family emergency, et cetera. But you cannot run a hospital for even an hour without veterinary technicians. Yeah, that's you know? why they don't get lunch. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you can run it for at least one hour. No, I know what you're saying there, and I appreciate that. Um, we usually close it down when they leave. Yeah, yeah. It's terrifying for <laughs> any clinic. I, I don't want to disagree. I want to say... I, I personally think that um, I'm I'm shifting my attention to customer service reps as the unsung hero of the the clinic, 
And the vet techs are the underutilized team member, I would say, because we use the heck out of our CSRs. That is what makes them the unsung heroes. The underutilized technician is just waiting to show you what they've got, what they can do. And meanwhile, you lean on them for everything that you will get them, let them do. And then, and they thank you for it. So we are a special role in the clinic for sure. And you're right, this recognition is coming and it's coming because we have got some amazingly brilliant people who have busted down a lot of walls and have said, look what we can do. We're not going to ask permission anymore. And um, there's a lot of technicians out there who are just doing astounding things and really speaking for what our capabilities are as professionals. Well, this is called Courageous Conversations for a reason. And so I want to I want to address something because we use the term technicians broadly in the veterinary profession, and I want to differentiate credentialed technicians from those who use the term broadly without meaning credentialed technicians. And, and that's a big issue because you're talking about underutilization of skills, but we're also talking about regulatory components that define in many states, but not all what technicians can or cannot do. So as a practice management advisor, consultant, and educator, optimally, we utilize our credentialed technicians to the highest level of their skill set and the, from a legal standpoint. But as you know, one of the biggest issues are practitioners who utilize unlicensed assistants in a technical role call them technicians, and let them do things outside of the Practice Act. How do we start to narrow the lane lines so that we could give you even greater respect for the accomplishments, you being the credential technicians, even greater respect for the accomplishments that you have and the skills that you contain? It's a trifold issue <laughs> that is probably more than a try. It's like a map. <laughs> mm -hmm. It kind of opens all up. And the, the, there's, a, there's a lot there because first and foremost, there is not regulation across all 50 states. So there are states where you can call yourself a veterinary technician. You can't say credentialed, but you can call yourself a veterinary technician and you are within the legal rights of the state because it is either voluntary or there is no mention at all of the role whatsoever. And that has like six, five or six states still now. Um, and it, part of the reason I don't know is because it's changing so quickly. The regulation is coming. States without it are, are pushing regulation and legislation. So we're really proud of that. So the first and foremost is 50 states have to recognize a, a credentialed veterinary technician in their practice act. The other thing that is an issue is the misappropriation of title of course, and title protection is incredibly essential. So like in North Carolina, it is considered a misdemeanor to call yourself a veterinary technician if you if you do not hold a credential. But that being said, like it takes a DA who's willing to prosecute that to do anything with that. And guess what they're really not interested in, you know? And so it's like this looming thing that doesn't really matter. So they bring it up on inspections and you can get dinged on it and they call it, they, they're like, we're cinching down, but not really. There isn't appropriate representation. I have like gone so far as to get real mouthy and basically say there's a monopolization of veterinary medicine. If you really look across the boards in the fact that half of the laws that are made to regulate veterinary technicians are made by veterinarians who are afraid they're going to lose money if veterinarian technicians have more rights to do more things. So there's always this underlying fear of the camel in the tent, as was so eloquently spoken by one of the um, veterinarians out of Utah at the AVMA. So that, as long as that's the mentality and we don't have the allyship we need on the level of hiring and utilization. It leaves us standing up for ourselves. And very few technicians are in a position where they can potentially blacklist themselves because they go out and say things like veterinarians are monopolizing veterinary medicine and mean it in a very loving way. 
but to mean it in a way that needs to make meaningful change. And then the last thing is really that model practice act and getting the practice acts to state what utilization looks like and what level of observation looks like. It's a, it's a big gray area, like here in North Carolina, where it's like, okay, what is supervision? What is direct supervision? What is indirect supervision? How is it defined? And it's vague for interpretive reasons that a lot of times favor the veterinarians. And that's, you know, that's, that's the thing that's really got to change is just that standard look of this is what we do. Similar to the nursing field, you know, a nurse can go from state to state to state and do their job. And that's, that's what we want to be able to do. That was very eloquently stated, Becky. You touched on some, some really uh, convoluted, complicated issues and addressed it, it with clarity. And so I really appreciate that. I want to push back slightly just so we can open up the discussion without necessarily expressing my own opinion. Peter and I have addressed the vet tech issue in some of our uh, previous podcasts. And I think even though I understand the response of the, of, of the veterinary technician community because of the actions of the veterinarian community in the, in the area of business, the focus for us now, the best way to, I think, re to make those changes is to take the team approach and look at the impact of taking the team approach as it improves healthcare for the patient. And I think, you know, rather than focus so much on which of which procedures vet techs can do and versus veterinarians or, or, or what have you, I think we have to look at how do we best achieve the healthcare goals or the healthcare outcomes that we are, that we're desiring as part of the team. And I think, you know, one of the things that you said is that was so elucid elucidating is the fact that it's the underutilization of veterinary technicians that can't be helpful or healthful for, for the veterinary business or for the patient or, and the client that uses, uh, that frequents that business. But the veterinary profession has a number of issues we have to address. And there are a number of people who dig their heels in when they look at change. It's not, it's not just a vet tech issue. It's also telemedicine. It's also access to, to health care. There are a lot of things that, that are going to require innovative views and moves. But one of the things that's most important is changing the business model as well so that everybody on the team of healthcare in the veterinary profession participates at a commiserate measure. So, and the recognition of the professional or the, the credentialed veterinary technician is a critical issue, but that recognition can't just be by regulation. It must also be on an economic level as well. I mean, I think that's beautifully said. I, I guess I'm like, where's the part you're pushing back? Because I fully agree. And I, I think you said it really well. You're right. And it is the whole team. You're right. We can make all the regulation we want to. And somebody can say, yeah, I'm still not doing that. You're not going to make me do that. And who's going to come in my hospital and tell me not to? I, hold, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that's part of the hard part, right? Because techs have to stand up and say, you can't do that. That's not allowed or that's not illegal. I think the pushback was, it's the conversation we have to have. And, and, and the goal of the conversation needs to be the healthcare outcomes, how we're going yeah. to improve and attain the healthcare outcomes. And yeah, I really didn't even go there, right? Like that's so important. It is, it's the bottom line. Cause like we can be doing it perfect if our patients don't have good outcomes. Right. <laughs> and are we doing it perfect? Like and, I, and, I remember. And, and I think veterinary medicine has proven that we have good healthcare outcomes for the most part, but, yeah. the, but the question is, can we achieve them faster for the patient? You know, can we decrease the amount of time that they're in pain? Uh, and can we take care of ourselves as we get there? Can everybody very good. do better, be better, feel better about medicine and what we're doing, right? Can we reduce the ethical fatigue that we all struggle with as Dr. Villalobos so eloquently labeled it, is that ethical fatigue because we can't do good medicine or, or we aren't? Um, and I think you're right. That conversation 
regardless of the laws, can be happening. The legislative change doesn't have to happen for amazing utilization and team recognition. That is something that can change today and now. And I want to say and emphasize your point that it is a team approach. Like, I don't want people to feel ashamed that they are not a credentialed veterinary technician. I want them to feel appreciated in their role as an assistant. I want them to be educated in their role as an assistant. I think NAVDA's approved veterinary assistant program structures a really well done job description and role and part of the hospital team that's essential and no more important or less important than anybody there. And I think we need to recognize that opportunities to educate all of the team. You know, I speak for Behringer and when I do these, these tech talks, what do you call them? These technician events. And I have CSRs there. I get so excited because they're the ones that they, they really want some knowledge and they really need it. So to your point, if we really utilize the whole team, CSRs and the education they could have and how they can assist an assistant who can assist a technician, who can assist the veterinarians, like this beautiful system that is how it's supposed to run and roll. And like, there is actually nothing more beautiful than really good medicine happening, no matter at what level. Yeah. And that includes receptionists too. Yeah. That's what I mean by CSRs. It was, we're ending National Veterinary Receptionist Week right now. This is National Veterinary Receptionist Week. We did a podcast with um, the founder and we talked a lot about the CSR and their team and, and their role and how important they are to the practice. And, you know, like the bookends, like Dr. Ernie calls them, they're the front and the back end. And so, yeah, there's like every member of the team. If you took any one of them out, it's everyone's job is harder, right? Like we all need to be recognized and our roles need to be clear and to utilize, you know, we have a lot of people in a clinic who know things, could do things. And, and whether that's your social media, whether that's planting flowers in the front yard, like what, when we really focus on what makes our team strong by asking them what they enjoy and what they want to do and how they feel they could contribute that we haven't let them, like there's so much opportunity. We haven't let them. We haven't given them the tools to be successful. Right. So my grandfather was an MD in the New York area, a general practitioner, the classic. What is, what, what is this New York stuff coming up? I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> and, Somebody had to. You know, but if you go back to the 1950s, when we had the classic general practitioner, the uh, Marcus Welby's of the world, which was before your generation, they did everything by themselves. And as healthcare expanded and we started to see clinics like the Mayo Clinic, which was actually from the late 1800s, the delivery of team-based healthcare in the human side has become the norm. There are very few doctors who are sole providers. Veterinarians still think they are sole providers. They are the only one in the rowboat. But we have to recognize this is an eight-seated crew, you know, the crew, the rowing ship, where the doctor or the manager is actually the coxswain at the top of the boat saying stroke, but everybody on the team, CSRs, credential technicians, assistants, animal caretakers, groomers, managers, the whole team have to be stroking together. And when you watch one of those boats going down the water in synchrony and in cadence, that's when you have a successful outcome. That's when you get to the outcome in the most timely fashion, in the safest way, with, few, with full utilization of the skills of the individuals that we have there, increasing the efficiencies and improving the business, which allows us to pay our credential technicians, our CSRs, even more. But why can't we get there? Why can't we get everybody on the boat especially the coxswain, the leader, to believe that the team can actually get them there. What is the rate limiting step? And I'd like to say trust. And I think a I, lot yeah. of tra trust and training, the two T's, trust and training. Yeah, I think it's like, it's funny because we see these veterinarians a lot of times will find like one technician who they know can do everything right. And they like cling to them. They need them to like live and breathe and um th they they utilize them to the fullest it's like the one person they trust and breaking down those walls is so hard and i think part of it is the liability right like our all of our worst fear is something goes wrong like some uh, and i think it's been 
embedded in the veterinarian that you're responsible for the patient outcome. And that's very true, right? Like that coxswain is the one calling the shots. And if something goes wrong, that's where the final calls were made. It's really hard. So I think there is a sense of responsibility. I also think you know, it, there's a frustrating thing because it, let's be clear, just because you have a credential, it does not make you a good veterinary technician. It does not mean you have amazing skills. There are no skill set to the CV or to the VTNE, right? Like it's a written test um, and you are supposed to gain the skills in school and come out with them. And I don't believe every veterinarian who graduates vet school has great clinical skills. And I don't think every technician who does. And I have heard so many horror stories of technicians who come into practices and blow in there like I'm a credentialed technician and have a chip on their shoulder because they have a credential. And there's these assistants who could run circles around them. And then you add this bully culture, you add this toxicity that we have, you have this feeling of there's not space for everybody because frankly, there isn't regulation. So there is a feeling of being less than or competitive against a credentialed tech who comes in. There's a lot of animosity out there, just plain and simple. And because it's poorly regulated, the roles are not delineated and the title is used inappropriately. And then you have people who are kind of at the the victim of that, who are really good at what they do and are being called a technician and don't necessarily understand why that's not okay. So um, I think that is, a, it's just a huge part of it. And there are not enough credential technicians to fulfill the utilization role. And so then you can't have a whole staff of credential technicians. And then you have people who it's like, well, how come she gets to do it? And there's a difference. And so you just get into this huge ball of wax until we have clear delineation of credentialing and what they are allowed to do and not allowed to do. And that's, I guess, sort of was my point before is that that's sort of what causes a lot of competition and, and toxicity in the space of, of clinics, I think. I want to summarize just some thoughts because I want to pivot a little bit to the manpower issue, which is just to say that this conversation on team-based healthcare delivery, that's the outcome. We have to lead the process. No, that's not the outcome. That's the mechanism. It's the mechanism to delivering the outcome of patient care. Yes. But from a, from a, from a, from a standpoint of the business itself, team-based healthcare is a target we should have where everybody is rowing in the same direction. And the leadership isn't there with a whip and a chair, but is there in a supportive role saying stroke, 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 don't have a stroke. And so team-based healthcare is the ultimate outcome in a well-managed, business that can then ultimately deliver team-based healthcare to the patient and the client from that standpoint. I just want to remind all of us that um, we're talking about a strata of performances within the veterinary profession. And I, I'm sure Peter would agree with this, that Peter gets passionate about this because he's frustrated with the people who don't want to change. But I think everybody recognizes that the better practices are already practicing team-based, already have a team-based approach or have some of the better teams integrated in their healthcare approach. And uh, and some of this is generational. And so I want to make sure that the statements we make are not too encompassing because I happen to think that the graduates that are coming out now are not looking for solo practices anymore. I think that they understand the team approach a lot better. I also think that there are people in certain air, geog geographic regions of the country that would love to be able to do that, but they have but they have personnel limitations. They have not just credential limitations, but skill limitations in their personnel and still have the same challenges of providing the best health care they can. Now, that's not to dismiss the toxic environment that Becky was addressing or to or to dismiss the the overall status of of, of underutilization of vet techs. It's just that I want to make sure that we that we also acknowledge 
that there are some bright spots, bright spots in this area. And we're really just trying to raise the baseline here. It's a great time to move to some discussions on the manpower issue at both levels. Now, Becky, you specifically noted that there are shortages of credentialed technicians. Now, if I'm not incorrect, we also had a number of tech schools shut down during the pandemic, or at least were impacted by it. So talk about the manpower issues with credentialed technicians. We have global manpower issues with CSRs, animal caretakers, et cetera, but how do we start to address the manpower issues in terms of, of uh, graduating more uh, credential techs? I mean, yeah, there's like 204 uh AVMA approved veterinary technician programs right now, I think 10 or so online programs. So there is no shortage of access to education. And I kind of have this like crazy thought of like, okay, you have a shortage of technicians, but not a shortage of people in your hospital doing the job of a technician. What about making them technicians? <laughs> Like, what about educating, certifying, and investing in those folks who you have in your clinic, who you are util utilizing as a technician, who are you're basically exploiting as a technician, and not investing in them to actually let them be that and do that. And that's like, I guess that's where I get crazy about it, because I'm like, you're there's a shortage of the title, not the people doing the role, right? The job. Very few people in your clinic, I think, would say, you know what, actually, no, I have zero interest in getting an education. If if I could not perform another skill today and I could only just do this job set as an assistant and not advance myself, I really just don't think there's that many people out there. So to me, like the no-brainer is you set this five years, what do you what what do you want? Five years, seven years to credential everyone that you can in your practice, and then we stop it. Then we stop this utilization of a title that does not belong to people who have not earned it, but are, are again, being exploited and put in a bad position, in my opinion. So the, the interesting thing is many of us who are at the upper echelon, as Phil called it, of practices did that, help pay for tech school, whether it was live or virtual. And the fact that there are 10 online programs does mean in some of the underserved communities that are at a distance from a tech program, they could use the online programs from that standpoint. But it goes back to some of the old school thought processes in veterinary, some veterinary clinics that, why would I train somebody they're just gonna leave? Or to quote Henry Ford, the only thing worse than training your employees and having them leave is not training them and having them stay. Yeah, so you know I do the podcast with Dr. Ernie Ward and he, yes. he said, you know, he used to hire people with the intention of them leaving and going on to better. He was kind of like, I'm worried about you if you're still here in 20 years. And if that's what you truly want and you're just happy in your life, that's okay. But what I would like to do is springboard you into something, whatever it is that you want to be or do or grow to be. And that's like what I would hope for most of the employers and management out there is to say, I'd love to give you a work environment where you were so happy and you grew to what you wanted to. But I also would like to help you reach your goals, whatever they are, wherever they are. I definitely share that philosophy. I believe that almost any job, even, even the job of a dean, gets boring at a point. It gets repetitive at a point. Yeah. And so every employee wants to be better. Everybody, every employee wants to do something more impactful. And that's not the job I hired you for. I mean, you know, I hired you to do this job. But if I think, if, but if I expect you to die in this job, then I'm asking for depression. I'm asking for boredom. I'm asking for uh, disenchantment. And, and, and I can only grow you so much in this job. If you continue to grow, you grow out of the job. Now, if you grow out of the job, the next question is, do I have another one for this? That's right. For this now much more talented person? And can I pay this much more talented person? And so a loss of an employee should be celebrated if it is an improvement in their condition. That's right. That's the Richard Branson quote. The opposite of the Henry Ford quote is to treat people well enough so they can leave, excuse me, train people well enough so they can leave, but treat them well enough so that they don't want to. Yeah. I mean, 
that and and to be honest when we look at what technicians want and what makes them happy you know it's not about money like they want a living wage but they want to be utilized they want to learn they want to grow and be able to do new skills and to act within the role that they have and to learn you know, you look at all these veterinary technician specialties and how they're just these amazingly educated individuals in their area of specialty. And we have avenues for growth for technicians that we can support them now. And, and it shouldn't be a matter of the person who's been there the longest is the manager and the leader, you know, and like, it's just that it's not a life sentence. Like you said, it's, it shouldn't be anyway. So if we took this pool of candidates, all of these unlicensed assistants, and we educated them and made them credentialed assistants. And then we continued to educate them and make them credentialed technicians. And they stayed with our practice. How beneficial to the veterinary manpower discussion could having better skilled, more delegated and um, leveraged team be in terms of maybe our ability to slow down the need for more veterinarians by leveraging our techs to do, or excuse me, our credential technicians to do more. I mean, how beneficial yeah, I think that's, the practice that's, would yeah. be. That's like what we're over here yelling is like, if you think there's a veterinary shortage, you're just probably not, you know, like utilizing your technicians. And that's actually what's sparking a lot of this conversation now, because out of panic, people are like, oh my gosh, I, do, I cannot find a veterinarian. So now I have to figure out how to get more things done a day to day. Now, I also want to say this. I also want to say this. <laughs> you should be... <laughs> planning for the amount of staff you have like I am so sick of like no one adjusting to the staff that they have so it's like we don't back our appointments down we we are literally running our clinics on the back of our staff and it, and so if we're short staffed we just punish everybody by having the same number of appointments and the same amount of work and it, it is mind-blowing to me like it is the only form of medicine where that happens well like maybe other than a hospital where like they super have to but they also have like 1200 people to work in different floors and to move around in a whole pool of people that travel the nation being nurses we're not there yet so it's like I don't understand why we just have this incredible incapability of adjusting to what we have instead of making what we have adjust to where we are and like driving them into the ground figure out what do you have to do to get by in a day and like if that if you can't make that work you need to adjust your business not your people you're kind of saying two things that are diametrically opposed on the one hand you're suggesting that we could at least partially satisfy the labor problem if we train the people we had that are doing credential procedures yeah on the other hand you're also saying that one of the concerns or the fears is, is that we're focusing so much on the shortage of veterinarians, and it may not be a shortage if we use our people appropriately, we can handle it. And yet we're running our staff ragged because we're not adjusting our scheduling to, to do it. I would like to su suggest that it's a little of both, but, but that there is a real increased demand for veterinary services that is creating a real shortage in both vet techs and veterinarians. I understand that within that dynamic, I love your strategy of educating the people we already have, credentialing the people that we already have and, and utilizing them more. I believe that that is a quicker way of addressing the issue. But I think after you do that, you'll still find that our schedules are too much for the people we have. And even if we plan for more staff or more veterinarians, what we're finding is we don't have enough people applying for them. Thanks for the opportunity to clarify there. So here's the thing. There are very few states where you have to be, like, like I want to use New York, for example. Um, California is pretty good about it, too, where it's like, if you don't have a credential, you're not touching a dog in New York State. You know, you're not drawing blood. You're, you're pretty much only restraining. You're not doing procedures. But like, let's look at a state like North Carolina, where I live, and everything is really gray. For the most part, it's so like, for example, you're in my state, you're supposed to be credentialed to intubate and induce and maintain anesthesia. 
when the board made that clear, there was like a riot of people who were like, I don't have enough credential technicians. I don't have any credential technicians. So what you're saying is I have to do every single one of those because I don't have the staff to follow that law. So because of that, most of them are not in accordance with the law, only having credential technicians do that. They're having their assistants do that. So credentialing them will not address the shortage because what I'm telling you is to credential the people you already have, but that's not going to probably change a lot because you're already utilizing your assistants as if they were technicians. It will address the, the shortage of credentialed technicians by putting the label on the people who are doing the job right now already, but it will not, you're right, create more people going into the clinics immediately. It doesn't bring staff. So that raises another question for me. And forgive me, Peter, if, I, if it seems like, like I've taken a left turn, but because you're an educator in the veterinary technician space, can you Give me your assessment of the consistency of quality across the curricula in veterinary in veterinary technical education. Yeah. It's a courageous conversation. It is a courageous conversation. How many veterinary tech schools did you say there were? 200? There's like 204. Yes. Okay. And what's the average number of students in, in the class? I don't know that I could give you those um, accurate numbers, but like I think okay. about in North Carolina, we have... 64 at Central Carolina that start every year. We have like 16 that start in Wilson, AB Tech, and Gaston are similar to those numbers. So there's a really wide range of class numbers. Then you look at schools like Penn Foster who run on a kind of a less regulated semester system. They kind of complete it as they go who have thousands of students enrolled right now. So it's really, really hard to gauge it and it is really program specific. I know like AB Tech has hundreds of students in their B bachelor's program right now. Again, because they're online, they can handle that. So um, it's all over the board. The problem, so here's the thing. You have a set of skills to be signed off on by the professional who's to sign off on it, whether it be the instructor or someone within the clinic. And that's regulated differently for online, hybrid, and in-person programs. Um my concern when I started a vet tech program that ultimately kind of was not launched right before it should have been launched and was kind of a, a crash and burn bummer, but I wanted it to be designed so that students were exposed to a lot of different facilities and people and skills. What I've seen in my history is some of the folks who do online programs they're, the person who is signing off on their skills is the person who's paying for them to go to school and the person who trained them to do the skill. So in some cases, th that then your education is as good as the person instructing you and the amount of time that they put into it and what you really make of it. I don't want to, I, I, I'll say that in the most neutral way that I can, because I have gotten my entire undergrad and my master's degree online. And I have had to work really hard to make my education what I needed to make of it because there's a lot of responsibility in online training, right? A lot of autonomy and getting things done. I've seen online programs. I've seen in-person programs that, that weren't doing great. And I've seen ones that are doing amazing jobs. And I think it's reflected in the VT&E scores. And, and I think there's an average pass rate in like the 70s. Um, and I don't know how that compares to the first round of veterinary veterinarian testing, but um, it leaves a lot of room for improvement. And I think there is a lot of room for improvement in the veterinary technician education, but I think there's a lot of them doing out there really, really great. Um, yeah. And I, and it's kind of, like I said, it's a really neutral answer because I think that's across the board in all kinds of education. I appreciate that. I put you on the spot and I, I appreciate the, the reasons for the neutral answer, but in it, you do infer that there is a spectrum of quality that causes some concern. Now, having said that, you told me that you wanted to become a vet, a vet tech because you were very interested in animals and your, and your grandfather uh, guided you toward that, or at least predicted that you would, this is where you were going to go, et cetera. My father did the same thing. I, I think your grandfather was just like my father and they're probably the same age. When I was a kid, I couldn't bring my dog in the house. Dogs were utilitarian, you know, but, yeah, my, yeah. but my father didn't hunt. 
so the only way I could have a dog was to beg him to finally get 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 a companion, you know. But I yeah. but I had but I, but the dog stayed outside. If I was going to be you know have a friend, I had to have. A, I would cuss my father out sitting on the porch, talking to my dog, you know, and oh. and and she never told him any of the bad words I ever used. No, nope. I guess what I'm trying to get to is what's the average reason a a person decides to go to vet tech school as opposed to trying to become a veterinarian? I love that. That's a great question. Thanks for that. Because I love to say we are not a consolation prize. Like I am not like, oh, I couldn't get into vet school and I wanted to be a vet. And so I went and did the next best thing. Like, nope, I'm not, I am not the next best thing. Thanks. So. And, and my new one now is that, you know, we are a profession, not a position. You know, it's not a, a position in the hospital. We are a profession. And so I looked at veterinarians who were doing a lot of writing in charts, a lot of looking in books, a lot of quick in and out. And the folks that were in the kennels, the folks that were holding the animals, the folks that were doing the smooching, the loving, the, the this technical skills, the medicine that were executing the diagnoses and the prescribed treatments were the technicians. Um, my mom is a registered nurse. And I know the difference between a doctor and a nurse. And I, I always respected that they were very individual roles and both very respected roles. Never even like occurred to me that a technician would be like a consolation prize. And then, you know, you get in the profession and people are like, oh, you're so good at this. You should be a veterinarian. And like, like, I'm like, do people say that to nurses? Like, have you ever met a nurse anesthetist? Like, what do you, <laughs> like, we are really smart, good. And then like, look at these VTSs. Like they're, we're, we're writing textbooks. You guys are learning out of, what are you talking about? You know? So yeah, for me, it was about, I wanted to do medicine. <laughs> like I wanted to do medicine and that's why I wanted to be a vet tech. Oh, that's very good to hear. Uh, you know, I, I taught in, I taught in vet tech school too. I won't, I won't mention which one. Uh, but, and, uh, one of the, one of the things that I noticed, this was earlier in my career and I, and, and I'm not, I'm not characterizing all of the students, but I was surprised at the number of students who were in the program who didn't like science or math. I hate math actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I love dosage calculations and I'm really good at them, but they're not math. They're dosage calculations. No, they're it's math. <laughs> they're words, math. <laughs> words count, right? Yeah. No, I know. I know. No, it's like, you're right. You're right. Um, because we play with puppies and kittens all day. Right. You know, I think even as an instructor, like I definitely, there were students who came in who were like, Whoa, there's poop and blood involved here. Yeah, like right, not right. having it. So they do, there isn't a good understanding of what the role looks like, you know, as a veterinary technician, I think. Um, I don't know. It, it always shocks me, right? Because I'm like, have you ever been to like a hospital or like a doctor? Like, But I, I think that is part of the need for so much more education about what we do, so much more public awareness about what we do. I just met with Tom Van Winkle and Trisha Montgomery, who are with the Association of American, no, American Association of Pet Parents, as well as uh, American Association of Shelter Vets. Tom Van Winkle does a lot of stuff and uh, Trish works with him. And she's kind of talking about how how much NAFTA and, and the Pet Parent Association could work together in helping to raise awareness, because I think that's a lot of it. People don't know what we do, but like, then we see like really cool things coming along, like programs popping up in high schools and tech, you know, colleges and things that, that are uh, helping students learn earlier about the other roles outside of veterinarians. And I think that's really important. So, you know, we got a, a part of it to circle back to Peter's, you know, conversation about the shortage is part of it is like that raising that awareness that it is, you know, because if veterinarian seems unreachable. People have to know that there's another way to go, right? Like I was raised in the generation where we were all going to be marine biologists and, and were and trained dolphins at SeaWorld. Like that's, <laughs> you know, what we were all going to do. And then like, so many people went to marine biology school and they were like, so I trudge through swamps and take swamp samples. And that's what I actually, I study algae. I've never seen a dolphin. So, you know, I think we have to be really, people, they, they know about veterinarians and, and they know about the Dr. Doolittle and it all looks so great and wonderful and you're saving lives. But there's like this, if the team was better um, utilized and and out there, I think there'd be so much more ability to for for the future generations to see it as an option you know we have well, we should, have the same problems of diversity that the vet field does well you should know that um the lack of awareness of vet techs is a is a consequence of the profession itself 
uh, and again, our lack of looking at team health, uh, a team health approach. Uh, back in, you know, when you were born, the profession was struggling with uh, the public knowing what the, what veterinarians did. They're and still struggling. And, and, because, and because of that, it's, I hate to use this word, but it's this, it's this trickle-down effect. We barely are handling the publicity, the public relations part for, for veterinarians. And we definitely haven't thought about it for vet techs right. as a professional team so that we can fill our own ranks. So that, that opens up two Pandora boxes right now. You ready? First of all, Always. people don't know what we do in the veterinary profession. I, it, the trickle-down effect, as Phil said. I, I can't argue with that. But there's a discussion amongst the credential technicians about the utilization of the term nurse, veterinary nurse. And it's a term frequently used within the practice setting, but one that is not really part of the credentialing program. And I know it has created a controversy amongst the, tech, the credential technicians, but your mom was an RN. And so she was a registered nurse. The nurses want to protect that terminology in, in some states specifically. What could, do you think that if the term nurse were associated with veterinary nurse versus veterinary technician, that it would make a difference in what people would understand? Or is it just a name change? Okay, so personally, for me, yeah, it does. It, it absolutely changes public perception and understanding. And that's kind of been proven anecdotally over and over again. But for me personally, I travel a lot and I'm on airplanes and people are like, what do you do? And I, if I say I'm a veterinary technician, they're like, oh, if I say I'm a veterinary nurse, they say, oh, there's just like this inflection change that makes it very clear that there is an a emotional and in intellectual difference in understanding what I am and do when I say that term. There is no argument what we do is nurse our patients. It is, it is the verb surrounding what we do. So I do support the title change in that sense. However, the current use of the title is a huge problem because it is not a legally recognized title in the United States and in fact in North America at all. And it is causing a lot of difficulty in recognition. And prior to this movement, there were there are organizations out there that use the term nurse for their non-credentialed and credentialed staff to create equilibrium instead of identifying their credentialed staff and, and saying, this is who they are. So they put everybody on the same playing field and it's, it, Even it's, more being taken, it's so bad. It adds a whole nother level of confusion to things. It adds a whole nother level of confusion to things. So we have to kind of look at our leading organizations who truly in solidarity came through to support the title change a little bit prematurely, we got to rein that back in because it is not a legally recognized title and it's adding another layer of confusion, much like the mid-level practitioner frustrations, right? Like we're not against that necessarily, but our concern is just like, we are already, we're not utilizing our technicians. We're already RVT, CVT, LVT, RV, LT, RVMT. What are they in Tennessee? So I'm sorry, Tennessee. I always forget you guys. What else? I'm sorry. They'll, they'll reach out and tell me. I will, <laughs> I will hear from Tennessee and they will remind me and I will never forget again. I'm sorry, guys. If, if one um, of our nine listeners is in Tennessee, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, you've you, you, you got a 22% chance that they do. Okay, 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 okay. Well, it, for that person, I'm in, well, that 1.2 people, I'm super sorry to you, <laughs> you guys. Um, but yeah, so, so th she that does know math. <laughs> busted but yeah so so that's the thing like so I kind of love the idea of being called a veterinary nurse I am fully in support of it on a personal level but I am also in support of not using it until it is a recognized title and um that's a it's just a really hard 
hurdle to cross and it is highly protected by nurses in a way that should be an inspiration to technicians to protect their own title. You know, like we're, we're watching nurses be like, oh, heck no. And then meanwhile, we're like, well, I don't want to say anything in my practice and I don't want to report them and I don't want to do da, da, da. And I'm like, I've reported people for misusing the title nurse and technician. The board doesn't necessarily probably appreciate it or care. I don't know, but I'm like, I stand up for my title, you know, but um, not everybody can do that. And I'm lucky to be able to do that. Becky, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. You guys, that was great. Thank you so much for that opportunity. I think we got to say a lot of important things. Thank you so much. Please join us next week where we continue our conversation with Becky Master, RBT. Yes, Becky, we really appreciate you. And, and uh, Peter, next time. Bill, next time. Peanut butter and jelly time. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.